Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Multi-Site Masters podcast. This is the podcast series that explores the art of leading and growing multi-site businesses, especially in the hospitality and retail sectors. So my name is Lee Sheldon and I'll be your host for today's episode. I'm also co-founder of the MMU Training and Development Consultancy, in which we're dedicated to helping managers achieve consistent operational excellence, leading to sustained superior performance. So welcome to this very special 40th, yes, 40th episode of the Multi-Site Masters. They say life begins at 40 and so will we. In this episode, we are returning to a theme that has reoccurred many times, both in the podcast series and also in my wider work with uh, MMU, and that's about achieving operational excellence. Now, I would argue that a key component to this is truly understanding your customers and their needs. Perhaps the hard bit is not just about understanding what those needs are. Many organizations can do that through research, but actually it's about getting everyone in the organization to pull in the same direction to deliver them. And truly successful organizations have found a way to do both. For over 55 years, Disney has been one of the best and most recognized exponents of this. And one of the key questions we come back to is just how do they manage it? Well, as we've said before, we believe the foundation of Disney's success is clarity. And at the beginning, clarity of their purpose. What are they here to do? And everyone kind of knows what Disney is about, particularly from the theme park perspective, which is where we're coming from today. And that's about creating happiness. It's about creating great memories for the guests, customers or families that come to visit those wonderful attractions. And from that simple clarity around purpose, Disney has developed a simple system that creates consistency and discipline to deliver great guest experiences every time. Now, as many of you will know, having listened to MMU podcasts on the Multisite Masters before, we've worked with Lee Cockrell. He was the former executive vice president of operations at Walt Disney World, and he was a leading um, contributor to the Disney Institute, which trains internal and external managers and has helped shape the Disney leadership behaviors uh, for the organization across the world now. Today, though, we're going to continue to explore what makes organizations like Disney so good at what they do with the help of Mr. Malcolm Ross and Mr. Chris Humphrey from the intriguingly named consultancy, Polaris Jack. In fact, this is the first of two episodes on this subject. Today, we'll begin by exploring how organizations Disney, like Disney build a truly world-class customer culture, how they build the architecture to deliver it. And next time, we'll explore how they execute it so consistently. So, as promised, I am delighted to be joined today by Chris Humphrey and Malcolm Ross from Polaris Jack. And now, that is a fantastic name for their consultancy, and we're going to hear more about that in a moment and explain where that all came from. These two guys have over 30 years of experience working with Disney organizations, and now, as consultants, they're helping other organizations determine how they create a customer-centric culture, which is the key to long-term success. Not just Disney, though, we'll be hearing about uh, Malcolm's work on the London 2012 Olympics, amongst many other brands and organizations that he's worked for. Now, as ever, I am joined by my co-founder at MMU, Andy Ball. Hello, Andy. Hello there. Good, uh, good morning, good afternoon. Whenever you're listening, hello to everybody. Now, Andy's going to be leading and facilitating our conversation today, and we're going to be referring to some specific documents, uh, a white paper that's been fabulously written by our colleagues uh, from Polaris Jack, and that's going to be available as a link in the show notes. More on that later on. But Andy, let's introduce our our guests for today. Well, absolutely. Um, 
I suppose we have to start off by saying, look, you know, in an age where the importance of great customer service is taken as a given, and that's true for most organisations, it's perhaps become fashionable or even, dare I say, a bit cliche to talk about customer centricity as the driver of great customer service. Now, I know I use that expression a lot myself, uh, all the time in actual fact, but what exactly does it mean? Just how important is it and what does it take for an organisation to become truly customer-centric? And just how can we ensure that being customer-centric is both profitable and sustainable? Well, as Lee has already said, to help us fathom our way through these difficult subjects uh, and awkward questions, we're delighted to be surrounded by two subject matter experts, Chris and Malcolm. Um, first of all, guys, uh, I have to say, Polaris Jack. Um, and, and where does that come from? Uh, it's, it's a really odd name for a consultancy. Can you shed more light on this? Oh, uh, yes, I can. Um, it's Chris here. Um, serendipity, I suppose. I, I don't know where it came from, but I can tell you where what Polaris Jack is. So, in New Zealand, um, between the North Island and the South Island, um, there is the Cook Strait. And apparently, and I haven't been there, it is an extremely turbulent um, stretch of water, um, which stru ships struggle to get through. Um, and back in 1888, um, indeed between 1888 and 1912, um, there was this dolphin, which is a Risso's dolphin. And um, when ships were going between the North Island and the South Island, this dolphin would show up. Um, and it would take, it would guide the ships through. Um, and we just thought that was quite a nice analogy. A dolphin taking ships through a piece of turbulent water. water. So great, so that's really what you're doing. You're helping organisations realise their, their ambitions literally by being that Jack, that Polaris Jack Polaris dolphin. Jack, that's what, yeah. Fabulous. Well, well, now we've cleared that We one don't up. make too much of it, but um, we thought it was quite We new. don't make, so it's Malcolm, we don't make too much of it. And I, I sort of smile and chuckle when Chris tells the story. But everybody we meet and we say, we're, we're Polaris Jack, and there's only two of us, uh, it, it, it triggers the question, where did it come from? And I think from a branding point of view, uh, with, a, with a legendary story, and that's what you're always trying to create in business, when you want to be customer centric, you want to, you want legendary stories, and you know almost the first time we meet anybody, they say, just like you did, uh, Andy, where does it come from? We tell the story about this, this lovely dolphin um, guiding people through the difficult turbulent waters, and so this becomes a legendary story. Yeah, it is one of those. I mean, it took quite a lot of angsting. I've met a lot of people who said that you know we just picked the name like that, but I guess having spent 30 years working for a storytelling company, um, it's nice to have a backstory. So we angsted, we angsted, if that's a word, um, Absolutely. quite a lot about having trouble <laughs> with the backstory. No, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, one of the things that uh, obviously MMU and uh, Polaris Jack share is uh, uh, a common appreciation, I suppose, of how customer-facing organisations manage to deliver a great experience every time. I mean, we both know from our mutual experience here that um, saying it and actually doing it consistently is incredibly difficult. Um, and uh, I think we both look to um, the Disney organisation, I suppose, as many of our listeners would, as a fantastic example of taking something about which we all have 
um, an, an appreciation or, a, or a, an impression of, uh, but actually how they managed to deliver that magic day in, day out to thousands upon thousands of guests. And uh, I think that's the kind of, that's, that's the start point, is it not, that actually inspired you guys to write your excellent white paper, Culture by Design. Um, could you just give us the background to that? Yeah, I think we realised meeting quite a lot of organisations and you know, thinking about customer experience and working with customer experience organisations, it occurred to us that a lot of organisations focus on the transactions. They try and focus on the solutions. And it occurred to us that what differentiates the work that we've done with Disney and the way that Disney thinks about it is it, is it focuses much more strategically. Um, what Disney Disney is obsessed with customer experience, for example, but it doesn't prioritise customer experience. What it prioritises is really understanding the customer and then getting everybody in the organisation to pull in the same direction. And it, it sees the customer experience as an output of getting those two things right. Um, and it's about how do you distill that understanding into the organisation and that's that that it, it made us realise that there's a different there's a, there's another way of thinking about it. Mm. Well, I mean, Chris, that I suppose yeah, I get that. I suppose the difficult thing for for me and I think for many of our listeners would be it. It just sounds incredibly difficult in turning what you think you would like your customers to experience into something tangible that makes sure that they actually do. And I like this phrase you talk about, um, you know, it, it's solution rather than transaction as to the way that you look at it. Um, have you sort of structured it in such a way that would enable anybody listening here to sort of start at the beginning and end at the end, if you will, of having the idea about a great customer experience and ways of actually achieving it? Yeah, I mean, I think there are three parts to it. One is fundamentally understanding the customer needs. Um, and, this, this, and the second is really distilling that in the organisation. So, so the, the first thing is, you know, uh, designing a customer culture that empowers, creating an overarching architecture which is around um, the brand purpose, which links the customers to the um, culture of the organisation. Um, reinforcing that with um, that purpose with a set of standards and behaviours um, and then permeating it through the organisation which is around um, leadership um, and the strategic use of HR. Um, so fundamentally there's, there's different steps within that but fundamentally it's, just, it's a three-step process. Understanding the customer, building an architecture permeating it throughout the organisation. Okay, well, excellent. Okay, so I suppose like all good journeys, we have to start at the beginning. So, um, I mean, in your white paper, um, you actually start with this whole notion of the role of culture in customer centricity. Um, is that the most important thing to start with? Um, I would actually argue not. I would argue that the customer, um, it, because at the end of the day, for an organisation, exchanging 
fair value with the customer is what sustains that organisation over the long term. And it's, it's doing that consistently that sustains that organisation over the long term. So taking a customer value lens to start with seems to me to be the, the, um, the most important. It's really sort of deciding with a clarity about what is the business you're in versus the business you're not in. Um, and some and there's evidence around us, also some um, research from McKinsey um, recently that suggested that only 22% of boards can articulate what value they create for their customers. Wow. And if you can't do that as, as, a, as, a, as a, the board of a company, yeah. how can you expect your employees to be able to do that? Yes. So it feels like it feels that understanding the customer and really figuring out, particularly in a, in a very fast moving environment, is really the starting point. And once you've got that, you can anchor a lot of other things into that, including the culture. Right. Okay. Okay. So actually, the key to success here is not to get pre-obsessed about, you know, kind of the, the culture of the business per se. It's really knowing your customer, what they want, and how, you know, sort of within your business, you're, you're, you're intending to deliver that long term. Yeah. And I think it's, I think that what quite a lot of businesses um, can risk doing is is getting hooked up on solutions. So, but, so how do we, and particularly because, tech, because of the attractiveness of technology, getting hooked up on um, technological solutions, which move very fast and you can't keep up with them. But customer needs change much more slowly. And if you can understand those customer needs in some way free of solutions, and you can define that, and you can use that as an anchor point, and it will, you know, in the case of Disney, Walt did this 65 years ago, because he anchored the business into those fundamental slow-moving customer needs and understood that. That has provided an anchor point for a lot of decisions over the past 65 years, including those fast-moving solutions. Right. So actually what we're really saying is, uh, and I can see this immediately, uh, many businesses, many organisations have actually become slaves to the solution, thinking that's the right way to go around things, doing things. I mean, I can think of banks, for example, um, that you know, actually give you a horrible customer experience uh, without actually intending to, because what they're interested in is the mechanical process rather than what it's like for the customer or the end user to experience that process. Yeah, I mean, banks are a good example. So what you know, what a lot of banks have done is they've they've seen you know mobile phones coming along and they've decided that they need to get into you know that's that's the future. So what they some of them have done is they've taken their legacy products and they've reduced them for use on a mobile phone. But what they haven't thought about is what what you know what am I really delivering to the customer and how do I adapt my business in this new technological world in order to deliver that to the customer? Whereas an organisation, it seems to me like Monzo, has said, we're in the business of helping people manage their money. How do we create a suite of products and solutions that fulfil that purpose? 
which is a it's 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 a different way of thinking about it, but it gives you a much more long-term way of thinking about it because you you've then got a filter for decisions that you would take about is this is this right for what we're trying to deliver to the customer in terms of managing money or so it gives you it gives you a filter for the for which technologies to deploy and which technologies not to deploy for example absolutely Can I, uh, so i think you put this succinctly in the white paper i think you refer to clayton christensen i might may mistake that but the job to be done yes exactly. and what is the customer hiring you for um and i think in the uh Disney example, you refer to creating happiness. That's what people are coming there for. Um, is that correct? And is, yes. do you think that's why Disney have got it right for so long? Is because they very clearly, at, back in 1955, I think it was, yeah. defined what it is we're trying to achieve. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, and Clayton, you know, what Clayton Christian says, says is that, you know, as a customer, you hire this company to do a job that you can't do yourself. And if it does the job well, you'll come back to it. And if and, and hire it again, and if it doesn't, you'll go somewhere else. And and you need to focus on that rather than on the solutions. And I, it's interesting because you know, for example, in the hospitality, you, it, it, a different brand, different brands can have can be can be providing different solutions. So Premier Inn can be, um, you know, helping people, people with a, a have a great night's sleep and be focusing on the in-room experience. Whereas somebody like Air, Airbnb. It's all about making you feel like a local. Mm. So it's about the environment within that within which that accommodation finds itself. So if you can articulate that very clearly for mm. what it is that you're in the market to deliver, then from a, from your customer's point of view, then it can provide that anchor point. So this is really chiming with. Um what we believe, I think, at MMU, which is that many businesses don't really understand what their, their purpose is. Yes. Uh, they might understand it in terms of what was written about the business in a brand book or, or some kind of strategic vision document, but actually it doesn't live and breathe within the organisation. Uh, and this thing about purpose, uh, it's a fascinating t- uh, topic. Can you actually expand a little bit about it from your point of view and where you think uh, you should start and why it's so important? Well, I think that's why we start with, um, why we start with understanding the customer. For us, we have a very, a very definite definition of it, which is it's an articulation of that customer value piece. Um, it's what, it's, it's a, a, a device to unite people inside the organisation about what value it is that the customer wants. And if you can get that right, it first of all provides that anchor point. Um, now you could look at the Disney one and you could say, well if I was doing that now, I'd do that differently, but because it's been in place for 60 odd years it, and everybody unites around it. It doesn't need to be changed. It works. Mm-hmm. So, but if you can get it right, and you, it, it helps to get that buy-in, and it helps to set it on the path for sticking around for sixty-five years. Yeah. So our view is, starts with the customer. Start then. There's a lot of work to get that right, get the buy-in, and then you're setting yourself on the path for um, 
it's sustaining. Yeah, sure. So one, uh, one of the, if I just jump in, um, one of the key things, and you know, uh, we, we're talking about Walt Disney, 1955, which is pretty amazing that um, you know, so many years later, uh, Disney is still thriving, expanding, and has moved on a pace uh, since Walt first came up with his vision. But the, I think the key role is, is you know, in in most Disney organizations, let's talk about Walt Disney World in Orlando, many uh, people have been there from the UK, <clears throat> hosts about 65 million people a year, but it's, it's, it's very labor intensive and there are literally, you know, 1,000, 60,000, 70,000 cast members. And how do you ignite and how do you energize all of those cast members with different roles and responsibilities around the same purpose? So, you know, from from people who are in the front line, who are interfacing with the guests every day, to people backstage, we call it on stage, what they do, on stage and backstage. And how do you make them all feel important, their role is important to deliver on the purpose? And that's what it is. How do you, how, what the rallying call is, you're, you said there are 20, 30 different roles in, in a theme park, and there's probably many more. How do you make them, um, all important, equally important, and all of them pulling together to deliver the purpose. And, you know, I, I've worked for many companies before and since I've worked for Walt Disney World and didn't the Disney organization, but I've never met anybody who does it quite as well. And we, you know, I know your organization talks about consistency, and that's it, you've got to deliver it every day and continue to improve and get better every day. It's, it's news having a great experience one day and, and something that really sucks the next. And, and that, that's the key. I think underlying this is there's a, there's a fundamental issue which is a sort of, has sort of exacerbated with technology, which is that organisation, the, the world has become more complicated driven by technology. It's become more complicated for customers, but it's also become more complicated for organisations. So organisations have, have had to specialise in order to address technology and in this becoming more specialized internally they become more complex and fragmented and um, what that tends to mean is that departments tend to become you know they become narrow the you know your, your uh, success is dependent on your department's success so they tend to be more and more look inwards and they lose, and you know, it's back to that McKinsey figure of the 22%, is they tend to become more inward focused and less externally focused. So the advantage of the purpose is it's a very simple way of giving people a taxonomy that allows them to look outside their, their narrow departmental confine. And that, that you know, that, that was, Walt realised that back in 1955, that in a service business, which was going to be multiple different disciplines in a theme park that he needed to give people a viewpoint which was outside their departmental specialization the reason that it still works and the reason that it is attractive is that the world has become much more complicated driven more complicated than he could have ever imagined in the 21st century but because it was so simple it still works we, we call it um Break it, or I, I call it breaking down silos. And you know, we yeah. consult as I, as I know you guys do in MMU with a lot of companies. And, and when you really dig down and unpeel the onion, it's broken down to three or four silos. 
and you know they're inward looking they're you know full of their own importance in their silo they're doing good work but they don't look outside that silo and they're not um, working with the other people in the organization as effectively to deliver what we're all trying to deliver if we don't you know from a customer point of view if you're not delighting the customer every day Walt Disney World is a perfect example you can't um, sustain a business hosting 60 million people a year uh, you have to rely on huge amounts of repeat business and in Walt Disney World uh, as in many organizations 60 70 percent are repeaters and therefore you've got to do two things when they leave the, the premises or leave the threshold. You've got to have delighted them and you've got to, you know, for them to recommend that experience and, and uh, time they've had to friends and family. Mm -hmm. It's a recommendation and delight them. And if you don't do that, then you haven't got repeat visitations. Mm -hmm. Without repeat visitations, you can't sustain a business. Any business has to be sustainable. And it has to be sustainable by 60-70% of repeat visitations. So if you don't blow the socks, I call it, you've got to blow the socks off yeah. uh, the, the guest. And uh, they say, wow, you know, when they, when they can come back home or if it's a simple experience of a, a restaurant or a retailing operation, you know, when they reflect, hopefully before they've got their, their credit card and looking at what they spent, <laughs> when they reflect, they say, that was a great experience, really you know, and they're talking about it. They're talking about it with their friends and family. And they then have the intention, maybe not next day, next month, or even next year, but to, they will go back and repeat. And that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Break down the silos and in the organization. Get everybody to look at the end result of, of uh, in, in, uh, in running a theme park. It's about delighting the guests, making them feel special. I think can, I, can I just, because uh, I know Andy's about, we are reading his mind, I know he's going to mention, uh, start with why. Um, but on an individual level, I love the point you made, uh, Chris, about the, your, your definition of purpose and this idea that it unites people in the organization. And I remember reading uh, Daniel Pink's book, Drive, about motivation. And he makes this point around, yes, of course, there's a profit motive, but it's the purpose motive that engages people on an emotional level. So if you want that team member who's doing six hours a week to the CEO to be united around the mission, it's going to reach you emotionally, giving people happiness, making memories, is going to matter to you, not to hit a certain epic dial number by 6% or whatever it may be. So it goes back to that, what, am I want to, what do I want to achieve for my guests? For my customer and wanting to believe and be part of that and I love the idea of it being a rallying call well, it, gets people and it's just so important because the other thing that you know that's happened is that you've you've got an increasing so you've got a functional product and you know historically there was much more of a focus on the functional product but now you've got this you've got the um, a, 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 if you like an ex, uh, a, there's a service wrapper that has been added to functional products and then there's a, a sort of brand wrapper that has been um, added to functional products. So you've got you've got these wrappers and there's a premium and a stickiness that can be if you can add experience to your product then you can um, you can generate stickiness and you can generate a premium. But to deliver that it requires a cross-functional cooperation. It's very much more difficult. You can't just have the product guys delivering the product. You've got to and in order to do that, you've got to break down the silos. You've got to have people talking together. You've got to have a common understanding. And, you know, as, as I said, as organisations have become more complex because they've needed to be, because 
there's a specialization. I mean, there are, there are departments that didn't exist 20 years ago now. You've got to create that, you've got to be much more intentional about creating that glue. And if you believe that it's the customer and a fair exchange of value with the customer that sustains that organization over the long term, then, and you think that the culture is the thing that exists within the organization, then the connecting the organization with the customer mm. seems like, in an intentional way, seems like a sensible, a commercially sensible thing to do. If, if, if I can, I, I often go back to keeping things very simple because I can understand them and if I can understand them, hopefully maybe I can relate to them and, and explain them and communicate them well. I, I think, to answer your question, uh, Lee, I think it's about setting clear expectations. You know, everybody has a different role and responsibilities, a different title, and their output may be completely different to the next person to the left and the right and in the other parts of the organization. But if they have a very clear expectation that's, you know, can be written down if necessary, but what is the expectation? And you put measurement in place to make certain that that's being delivered. And then you catch people doing things right. And you then give the attaboy and the recognition piece. It's self-perpetuating. It, it's like a dynamo. It goes faster and faster and faster and deliver. And you can stand back. You can't micromanage people. And you know, we're, I know, talking right now to some maybe sole traders to multinationals. But you know, in a in an organisation, when it gets over thirty people, you can't micromanage people. It may be 30 people, it may be 3,000 people, it may be 30,000 people. You can't micromanage people. So how do you make certain that people are delivering on the purpose and the expectation? You've yeah, got that's to put very, very clear expectations in. Then you catch people doing things right, you put the recognition in. That is what it's all about. You know, I've seen many organizations that spend 90% of their time trying to find people doing things wrong, <laughs> making people feel miserable, not feel valued. Um, and you know, hey, then they suddenly realize why the business is, is cascading and going down a spiral of, of poor performance because, you know, you're not empowering people. You're not, you know, the people in the organization have got to feel proud of the work they're doing and they've got to feel that it's being valued by the organization, by their boss, by their peers, by their, you know, fellow uh, cast members and fellow employees. And if, if you put that into place, pride and passion, and, and, and they know they're doing a good job, and they know that there's an occasional attaboy and a pat on the back, and it's not pay, they're not gonna be motivated by pay, I don't believe that. I think mm. you, 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 you're actually motivated by feeling that you're valued in the organization. Uh, my boss and my co-buddies uh, in the organization know that I'm doing a good job, and they know I'm valued, then, hey, I, I just can't wait to get to work. It's not a question of being late, and I'm not looking to, to clock off early. I, I, I feel great about what I'm doing, and I know that then the organization is thriving. Hey, it, it, it's simple, that's what it's all about. Clear expectations, without them, you're dead. And, and that's, the role, that's, the role, that's the fundamental role of the purpose, mm -hmm. is that rallying cry beyond the department. And I think that the other thing to say about the purpose is that it's, um, People often focus on just the front line. I think the, the thing about the purpose is that it's permeating it across the entire organisation. So that and that was the beauty of the way that Walt thought about it. 
So that when your, finance, when your financial director is taking a capital investment decision, he or she is making that decision on precisely the same basis that the person at the front line who's interacting with the customer is, is making those decisions. So yeah. you've got this consistency from top to bottom and left to right within the organisation. So I think you, you, what you've clearly articulated here is that when we talk about purpose, it's, it's, it's often a very, very simple vision of what the organisation is trying to achieve. In the case of Disney, it's about happiness and creating unforgettable memories. And I think if you think of it in those terms, it's a very simple proposition for everybody to get, isn't it? Yeah. From the guy that's picking litter to the guy at the top. And if I may, I'll, I'll give an example. I mean, when I was a boy, I used to, I spent a bit of time working for Alton Towers. And uh, as marketing manager there, I can remember that it was all about creating magic. And I do remember quite genuinely being involved in, in very senior meetings where the FD was talking to the ops director um, about something that he had proposed, and it is, well, you know, how is that creating magic? Well, actually, this solution means that it's creating magic for the guy that's actually checking the, uh, the guest through onto the ride. Uh, it's actually helping the, 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 uh, the guest get through the, uh, um, the system uh, to actually get onto the ride quicker. There was a kind of a justification in the language, the lang- lingua franca, really, of, of creating magic, and that's what it does. And everybody kind of rallied behind that. So I get that. And I I can see why people who've been to Disney would see that in the way that Disney do things. But here's the kicker. I can imagine somebody turning around and saying to me, well, if this is all about, you know, the guest experience, what if we end up doing things that really are fighting with the role of what that individual is trying to do. Let's just say, for example, they're there to pick litter, but they're trying to help a guest do something where they've lost something. If they're not picking litter, and that's the job we're paying them to do, uh, but they're busy helping the guest, where do you draw the line in all of that? Where do you stop things kind of moving from being focused around the job they're paid for into a sense of trying to herd cats? Well, there is a, there's an overarching governing philosophy within Disney, which is that purpose trumps task. So it's all right to be off task if you're on purpose. But, and Malcolm will know this and be able to talk to it a lot better than um, I will because he run the, in, run the theme parks. Um, but it's just, it's, there's also the, the relevance of common sense. So if you're um, a cleaner and you've just had the parade, and I'm sure it's the same at Alton Towers, that there are times when you know you need to be on task and sweeping the clean because cleanliness is you know one of the important parts of the proposition as well. So coming back to the point that uh, Malcolm made earlier where it's all about literally setting expectations how does that fit then, Malcolm, in the framework of, of purpose trumping task? Uh, well, I don't want to um, over um, talk Disney, but now we're on the subject. Let's let's talk about the mundane. I mean, keeping the theme park clean is is in 1955. That's where World started, and it's never gone away. So that's key, and it's what the people remember most, but don't really notice it. it but you know, expect it. so. Everybody's task um, 
and it's not just custodial, which is what Disney call the cleaners, uh, to pick up litter. It's uh, it's everybody's from the CEO to the president to, you know, I was vice president of operations, and the the, the key to me was I couldn't walk past a piece of litter without picking it up, because I knew if I did there would be 20, 30 cast members who would be looking at me and said, oh, well, if the boss can walk past it and not pick it up, it's not important. So that's a good example. So, you know, you lead by example, uh, you, you'd be picking up trash. You might, at the same time as you're picking up trash, find a couple of custodial colleagues and say, come on, let's, uh, let's get this uh, clean. The bread just gone through. Let's get this clean. So I, I think everybody's task is... Um, to make sure that Disney in, in this respect is clean and therefore if you lead by example um, it, 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 that's the benchmark that's the expectation is clear as daylight mm. and it also legitimises decisions that you know so for example if um, it's one of the stories we tell in the white paper about the, uh, the, the guests throwing the uh, doll over the um, into the construction site and it gets muddy and there isn't a, so it, and, and in order to solve that from the guest point of view and end up with a photo album with the, with the doll being uh, made up and redressed and all of those sorts of things that required continuity across departments and it was you know there was a budget implication for that to happen but because of this purpose trumps task it meant that everybody pulled in the right direction and, and pulled in the same direction in order to facilitate that, they didn't need a manager to sanction it, and they didn't need anybody to sign off the budget. It, the, you can do it confident knowing that that is going to be okay because of this governing philosophy. And it, it, so it has a very practical sense, but it just, because it's in the psyche, you can do it in real time and quickly in order to respond that without having to think, oh, is this going to be a problem? Is somebody going to, you know, is somebody going to worry that I spend $100 sorting this out? You just know that. I talked earlier about creating legendary stories. Yeah. I think it's true in any business. That is, is a great way to perpetuate the culture and the customer centricity. And for me, you know, I'll give you an example. If, if, if somebody's job is keeping the park clean, and they see a child drop an ice cream. And the child's obviously distraught, breaking into tears, mum doesn't know what to do, mum's scolding the child, dropping it. Then, it, you know, taking the initiative, walking that extra mile for the customer, for the guest, is what it's all about. If you can set that in the expectation of that cast member, that employee, then they will create a legendary story. In, and, and probably take the child with the mother go to the ice cream stall, uh, give them an ice cream for free to replace the one they dropped, that mother will go and tell that story when she goes back to the yeah. hotel room, back to them, wherever they're staying, will tell that story 50 times when they get home about what happened. That's what's creating a legendary story. That's, that is the culture of the organization. That, that person is, it was, is employing primary job is to keep uh, the park clean, but yeah. they didn't. They they took a initiative to walk that extra mile for the guests. Yeah. They created a legendary story that is told a hundred times, probably yeah. over the next three years. And the big and 
actually reinforces the culture of the organization. You can do it, it doesn't have to be Disney, you can do it in any, creating legendary stories to me is, is what it's all about. You don't have to question it in the moment when you do it. Let me just, if I can digress from Disney for a moment. Sure, please. Talking about the same point, but in a different environment, different company. I'm, I'm not talking about a company, but I'm talking about a sector. I'm talk, I, I've been involved in my career in the hotel sector quite a lot and different hotel brands. And to me, the importance of any hotel is the first impression, the last impression. The rest in the middle has to be great, has to be exceptional. But if you don't have a good experience when you arrive, whether it be it's the doorman, uh, the concierge, or more often than not the reception, then you've lost it. Doesn't matter how many nights they're staying, how many how many uh, uh, people are involved, and uh, and how many pounds they're spending. It, it, if it's gone wrong at reception, you're dead in the water. So I never found in any hotel brand I've ever been that if you empower the, the, the person at reception to take care of the guests and to fix a problem if they have it. You know, the, the, the booking wasn't quite right. They've changed their requirements slightly. They have got an extra special request. There's somebody who's got a wedding anniversary or, or they don't like the room or whatever it is. If you fix it there and then, and you give them the, the responsibility to fix it, empower them to do that, they'll never give away the crown jewels. They're never gonna, it's never gonna cost the company any margin that will be recognizable on the monthly P&L because they fixed a problem. And more often than not, if you fix a problem at the beginning, you've created a great experience, the beginning of a great experience, and they go on to be enjoying it. That might even, they're not probably gonna relate when they go home that it was fixed, but it's become a positive. Turn a negative into a positive, particularly at the beginning or the end or in the middle, but do it at the beginning you have nailed guest satisfaction in my respect in a hotel business when you train the person it's not training them just on reception and the systems it's training them what is our purpose it's delighting the guests making certain that guest is you know feel feels delighted that feel special you're you're treating them mm -hmm. with respect and you're fixing a problem that they might not even know they had and you're delighting them bingo yeah you know, I, equally when we talk about removing hassle, um, you know, the, I almost think there should be uh, a title in or an organization, you know, somebody who's in charge of getting rid of hassle. It's not just hassle for the customer, though. We should be focusing on any organization, whether you're a sole trader to a multinational, in taking the hassle out of the employee's side of the business, because that's a pinch point, that's a frustration. You're gonna, if you become frustrated with hassle within the organization of doing your job, then unfortunately you are going to feel rotten about it, you're gonna get upset, you're gonna get angry, and inevitably you will either take that out on your co-workers or more in if you're customer facing, and you know, most businesses are, probably you're listening to this podcast, then you're gonna take it out on the customer. So let's think about not just taking the hassle out of business for the customer, but let's think about taking the hassle out of business for the employee. Yeah. We, um, regular listeners to this will know, I've said this a lot, there's a fantastic quote, uh, if you're not serving a customer, you better be serving someone who is. And that for me is that being aligned to the customer, being aligned to what I need to do to make it easier for the customer. 
I'd like to ask you a question, Malcolm, because one of the things I hear a lot from some of our clients, particularly when we talk about Disney, they go, yeah, but that's American. Yeah, that's over there. We, we can't replicate that here. One of the things that I saw, and I know you were involved in London 2012, is the, I think the Games Makers was the name yeah. given to the volunteers. The experience that they gave to people visiting the games was almost Disney-like in the sense of the energy, the passion, the enthusiasm. Um, I'm going to bet that didn't happen by accident. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? And again, I'm, I'm guessing this links back to purpose. Yeah, it wasn't my sole responsibility, but I was involved uh, in um, the Olympics from the, the, the legacy point of view, but very much involved in the building of the venues and the experience and, and the execution of the Olympics themselves. But yeah, the games makers, in my opinion, made the games. And mm. I think that was the, one of the things that, that we, we thought about more than ever. And, and we, we focused uh, as an organization on how we would deliver that. And we put in the resources to recruit the people to become the games makers. And, um, you know, and they were all volunteers, not paid. And that was the amazing thing. In fact, my wife as a recruiter uh, volunteered to do that and went to, um, in London, and people came from, you know, north, south, east, and west, would travel at their own expense from Newcastle, and had volunteered for a lot of things beforehand, possibly, but wanted to work on the Olympics and wanted to be a games maker. And, you, you know, there were, probably 50 different roles in games makers. They may be in charge of cars, parking, uh, the railway station, the bus station, uh, uh, queues, um, you know, helping, uh, just uh, just helping the people visiting uh, the Olympic sites uh, to make it hassle-free and to get the maximum enjoyment. But yeah, a lot of time was spent. So, you know, it was cleverly thought through. It's a question of, um, you know, not setting just the clear expectations but what the, the role was going to be and what it would look like. So they had a costume. Uh, they were on stage, a bit like Disney. Uh, and uh, they were trained, uh, and they had to feel good in their costumes. So I know some people who still got the Games Maker costumes, and they had it since mm -hmm. 2012, and they sometimes wear them, and or the trousers at the top, because uh, they're, they're proud of what the job they did. So their role was very clear, is to blow the socks off everybody coming. So I remember Stratford Station, there would be, you know, when uh, they are, the, the trains were coming in, the over, overhead, the uh, underground, there would be thousands of people coming towards you. And, and, and it, we wanted to empower people to lose their inhibition. Uh, you mentioned, you know, being Disney or being American, but they were British, they yeah. were British people. They were unpaid. They were trained, um, they were obviously given a costume, and they had very clear expectations of what their role was. They had shifts, um, and I would say we just were absolutely blown away with how they performed and, and loved their jobs. And still to this day, people talk about the success of the game. They don't talk about the number of medals that were won by the, the GB, they may do, but they've probably forgotten that. Uh, you know, you, you, they forget the weather, that was, which was great. They forget what they did. Uh, they forget, uh, you know, everything about it, but they won't forget how they were made to feel. That's what it's all about. That's what, that's what the legacy is of the games. It is a testament that if you've got a framework 
and you create that sort of organising framework and architecture and you're very clear what people's roles are and what the boundaries are within that architecture and you value people and then you trust them to get on with it and be spontaneous, flexible in the moment, then even diffident Brits <laughs> can knock the socks off people. Well, I think for me, blowing their socks off just feels like the perfect place to end part one of this discussion and interview. Uh, I almost feel like I want to go full Michael Caine with blowing the socks off. This has been a great opportunity to really explore the customer purpose and how Disney do it. Uh, three things I think stood out for me, just the importance of getting it clear and simple so that quite frankly increases the likelihood that people will understand it and people will all pull in the same direction. That clarity is also helpful in providing people with a filter to make decisions and that great phrase, it's okay to be off task if you remain on purpose. And again, that third piece about blowing the socks off is for me fundamentally about exceeding customer expectations to create the legendary stories that we want our guests to experience. So that's part one. In part two, we'll get a little bit more detail about how Disney actually provide this direction. And specifically, we'll be talking about the four keys that are service standards, if you like, and behaviors that help define for everybody what they should and should not be doing. And these are absolutely driven through recognition and training throughout the organization. We'll also get into the leadership traits required to build and sustain a culture of understanding the customer that drives everything we do. As ever, thank you to Sam Walsh for this episode and all of the episodes so far of the Multisite Masters for producing and publishing these great stories and these great interviews. We're really grateful to you, Sam. We hope you're enjoying the series and we'll continue with episode 41 coming in a few weeks' time. Until then, take care. <laughs>